the story that led to the book Fake revealed that I'd been the victim of a romance scammer, really. He didn't take money from me, he never asked for money, but he was not who he said he was. And I spent 15 months with him thinking I was going to be married and spend the rest of my life with him. And we'd lived this dream existence on a on his country estate that he told me he had. Of course he didn't. After it ended, I just had to know who he was. I had to work out who the hell this man was that had completely and utterly convinced me of this story arc. I did a lot of investigating in, into who he really was. Hello and welcome to Stories by the Wayside, a podcast by Wayside Chapel. My name is John Owen and I've been the pastor and CEO of Wayside Chapel since 2018. But I've actually spent my entire life creating community with no us and them. This podcast is a tribute to love and belonging, loneliness and loss, and the rich kaleidoscope of chaos that comes when life is lived from the gutter up. Every episode, I invite friends from the wayside for honest, big-hearted conversations about the crisis of disconnection in these overwhelming times. Today, you're going to be meeting someone who inspires and challenges me with her intellectual curiosity, her brutal honesty, and her rare ability to tell complex, crazy, and compelling human stories. At Wayside, we say we don't like to take a snapshot of a person and call it the whole movie. Well, this journalist and author who I'll be chatting with today tells stories that examine the way we live, who we are, and the struggles we face. She's always been drawn to stories of vulnerability and to people who live on the edges. A few years ago, I wrote to my inner circle about the urns that I have sitting in my office. Cremated ashes of people who have died on our streets, sitting unclaimed, contested, or sometimes simply forgotten about. The woman you're going to hear from today took it upon herself to learn a little about the lives of three of them, something which we're so grateful for. We'll link the story that was published in The Guardian in the episode notes. to be completely young and irresponsible, well, not, well, I'll never be young again, but I'd like to be completely irresponsible and not have to take on any of the burdens of life's heaviness. Instead, I feel as if I do everything in the in terms of some caregiving towards my mum, who's who's very strong and fit, but needs help with the internet for us, you know, on the, the help desk mm. on, on the phone. Dad being sick was very stressful. He had cancer and there were some years of his terrible ill health, but also mental health issues. Um, which were very challenging, and I feel as if I'm a... I just... I take a load on that's very, very heavy, and I wish I didn't have to... I didn't... I wish I didn't have that characteristic in my personality. I'd like to be more free and easy. When we're children, we look at our parents and we assume that they're okay Mm. and we kind of base every reaction and response we have uh, about them and internalise them about ourselves ourselves. Um, what age did you become aware that perhaps dad, dad's mental health wasn't quite what it was, um, Probably you thought it was? Probably quite old actually um, mm. because it wasn't talked about. And there's a complex story in sort of that is part of this bigger story. My dad was a member of parliament in the Queensland Parliament during the Joby Peterson years, which students of politics will probably remember as being really vicious, unpleasant time. Um, police, state, civil rights protests, arrests, degradation of the environment, 
Bjorki Peterson would brook no dissent and Dad was in a very small number of Labor politicians in the opposition and I think it was 74 or 75 in the state election, Labor was just pretty much wiped out even more than that. They were very small opposition and then they were wiped out even further as in a backlash against the federal, federal Whitlam Labor, Labor government and I think there might have been about five Labor members left in the parliament then and Dad was one that went and politics just ran in his veins. His father had been the leader of the opposition in Queensland in the 1950s and he took over the leader of being the leader of the opposition after the split in the Labor Party and that was a very awful stressful time in Labor politics and um, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. It, it was just an ugly time of religious division which fed into the Labor Party and there was great schism and my grandfather died in office. He f- fell dead of a heart attack after about a year as the opposition leader, which was a, an enormous grief to my father who was probably about 19 then. But politics, the, what, the, I guess the p- point of what I'm trying to say is that politics just ran in my father's veins and my uncle's veins. He, Dad was a twin. So my uncle also was in Parliament, in the Queensland Parliament at the same time my father was. For the Labor Party? For the Labor Party, <laughs> yes. Yes, they weren't on opposite, opposite sides of the, the, the benches. Um, and um, my uncle was also wiped out in that election. Um, and I, I, I don't quite know whether my uncle felt the same about politics as Dad did, but Dad's ethos was one of service. It was, it's so, it was so different to so many politicians today. Um, he, he, it was in his blood and he loved it and he loved, he loved debating and, and, and public speaking but also helping people. And I think that came down um, from his father and when we were clearing out the family home, I found a box of um, tributes to my grandfather that everyone thought that they'd been thrown away mm. because he had a state funeral in Toowoomba in the late 50s and... Uh, there were there were tributes and flowers from the prime minister and the opposition leader and some of the great figures of of both labor and conservative politics at the time and uh, everyone thought that the box of the tributes the cards had been thrown away and cleaning out the house in the storeroom I found it this dusty old box from the late 50s and you can imagine the old cards and the florals the you know the old sort of pins stuck through them and the rust on the cards and yeah. the just the, the feeling of the vintage history there. And among those cards, I found this one from a woman in spindly kind of handwriting. And I think the, her words were, to, to Mrs Wood, your husband was very kind to me. I am just a poor woman and he helped me so much. And she, it was not quite literate. It was, you could see that it was an effort for her to write those mm. words. But um, it just struck me. It said so much about this. I never met my grandfather, obviously, because he died in the late 50s. And it, I longed to meet him, just so longed to want to meet this man. And it sort of, I've kept that note in my heart because it feels to me as if it says something about him. And then also about sort of my father had those qualities as well. Hmm. But politics, growing up in a political house, is hell. And I've actually often wanted to write about it around election time. No matter what side of politics you're on, it's brutal. It's it's awful. And election, I, I vividly remember, like, the night, election nights. One, they were quite... After Dad lost, he stood again about three or four times and never got back into Parliament. And the, the awful, heavy feeling on election nights when you I could see... And I was a kid, I was a teenager, and you could see that it was not going well 
and you could see my parents' faces and I could feel their grief. It was real grief. And so I really feel that strongly on election nights that no matter what sort of politics you're on, it's, it can be very, it's, a, it's awful. The human face of politicians is not often something we focus on. I think we're seeing a little bit more of that now as leaders are elected and we know about their families and some of the, the pressures that go on them. How did you experience that personally as a child of a politician? Were there expectations on being a politician's child? Oh, the expectations were... I think that politicians' kids are trotted out a lot more, particularly if you're a a high-profile one. Mm. I think the expectation on us was just to sit down and be quiet. (laughs) It was was a slight... My mother was a school teacher. Well, my parents were both school teachers and um, mum was a bit of a disciplinarian, still is, still disciplining her 56-year-old daughter. (laughs) And, yeah, we had to just put up with what... You know, if we were dragged to Labor Party meetings, I remember them vividly sitting in the a cold, smoky trades hall meeting room in Toowoomba, in Russell Street, Toowoomba, you know, all the old men with their cigarettes and their old hat, you know, the put, but they all, men wore hats yes. in the, like it was the early 70s, mid to late 70s, and the men wore hats and were smoking and the cigarette smokes winding up towards the ceiling and we're sitting on these wooden benches and... Dad and whoever other that were up was up the front and I remember being in my pyjamas down the back reading a book, just <laughs> having to put up with it, um, the number of meetings and functions that we were dragged to. So the expectations were just to put up with it, really. Yeah. There was certainly a, a, a shared understanding around civic participation back then. You know, yeah, I think The so. um, mm. Roman Empire and uh, ancient Greece, they used to define the word idiot as someone who was a private citizen, someone who was only oh, concerned really? for the affairs of their own household rather oh, than wow. for the um, for the polis, mm-hmm. for the city uh, and the affairs of the city. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we've, we've begun to move to a different kind of understanding about civic and social responsibility? Now, because you are someone who is passionately driven about issues around social justice. Yes, I am. I think it depends on where you are in the circles that you move in. I fear that in many places in Australia it's not it's not important at all and self-interest is the primary motivating mm. factor. And I see that, particularly around election time, if we're talking about politics and elections, I've often handed out how-to-vote cards and more recently not for the Labor Party but for the Greens um, and for independent candidates that support the mm. environment because yeah. to me... with the environment is number one above everything else because if we don't have an environment, yeah. we don't have a home, we don't have anything. Yeah. And this struck me particularly during the election when Morrison won, when Scott Morrison won, yeah. and I was handing out how-to-vote cards down in the southern reaches of Sydney. It was Angus Taylor's electorate, which stretches all the way down past Canberra. And I was just really horrified at the people who would sneer it. I could. I was standing near someone who was handing out Labor cards and I was handing out for an independent um, climate change candidate. And um, this is a worry because I'm not meant to declare my politics as a journalist, but <laughs> it's a bit hard not to. Um, but I was just horrified at people rejecting the Labor and the climate change candidates' cards with just a sneer. And they were, I can't even remember what they were saying, but they were basically saying, where's Morrison? Where's ScoMo's card? Where's ScoMo's card? And it was kind of, oh, and I don't know how to say this without sounding terrible. It was, it was, it was newly affluent people who 
seem to be driven by self-interest. Right. That was my strong impression and impressions can be wrong mm. but it was this guy's going to help us climb up the ladder. He's going to make sure that, you know, we pay less taxes. Mm. We, he's going to help us look after ourselves. That was my very strong sense and so... Which in no way, shape or form is the founding for... I mean, you're, you're right in Queensland with Bar Holden right there, you know, with the, yeah, of the foundations for the Labor yeah, Party. Yeah, of course, but sure As well with um, the ultimate ideology of the Liberal Party too was it was never to work to increase the personal interests of mm. community. There, there's a shared understanding and responsibility yeah. there too. We've we've come into uh, are they brave new orders or are they scary new orders? I think they're scary. And, mm. and it comes across when people, they do those vox pops interviewing people on the street at election time about their voting mm. intentions and people will say, well, what's in it for me? Mm. And I, there was someone, I can't, I, I can't remember the guy's exact words, but it's some old guy recently inter- interviewed at the last election asking, you know, he's not going to do anything to help me. Mm. And it's like, if you're, um, am I, I'm probably showing my socialist origins, but if you're in a really comfortable position, you know, isn't it your obligation as a good person and as a citizen to not look at your own interests? At Wayside, we say we don't like to take a snapshot of a person and call it the whole movie, but you've written a book mm-hmm. uh, about a, a, a significant experience that you had mm. in life. And so... Yeah, I'd let, let's go there if that's okay. Yeah, we can yeah. go there. Um, mm. That doesn't trigger me these days. Mm. Um, I barely think about it mostly until some dick behind a microphone asks me a question about it. Well, before we even <laughs> get, go there, uh, you know, you, you've you, you have spent a career telling stories mm. and spending time with others and hearing their story and then um, presenting that in very beautiful and uh, quite challenging ways to the broader society, and so. Since writing the book, you've done a lot of interviews. What has being on the other side of the uh, microphone or the interview process taught you? Uncomfortable. It's it's difficult to be on the other side. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's, I suppose, also it makes me realise how much you ask of people as an interviewer. When I've been an interviewer, you are asking people to share so very much mm. and it's it's a big ask. And I also look back on some interviews I've done and I feel uncomfortable about them. Mm. I demanded too much. I probably wasn't sensitive enough. And in fact, I'm doing about to start doing some work for a not not for profit. The not for profit does work in the domestic violence space, and part of my work will be doing case study interviews to be used by this not for profit on their website and in other forums. And I spent a day studying how you tell these people's stories and how you actually approach them. Um, in the interviewing technique, um, well, there's a name for it. I think it's response-based interviewing, I think. But one of the interesting things, and it had never occurred to me, it's very obvious, but it had never occurred to me that when you're interviewing people who have been traumatised, it's so important to give them a sense of agency as they tell their story. If it's a domestic violence victim, so often people go, well, why didn't you just leave him? I mean, you've heard that a million times, of course. And there are so many reasons why you don't leave somebody, as I know from my own experience. But one of the things that this training has taught me is that you need to be giving them the opportunity and the voice to talk about how they resisted. Because often resistance in a domestic violence setting is, it's not 
not overt, it might be something very covert because that's all they feel capable of doing. It might be, I don't know, tampering with their dinner or something in a, in a, in a, a way that gives them some sense of I'm fighting back against this bastard. I've learnt that it's going to be really important in my future interviews to make sure people are allowed to express their power mm. and where they've, um, where they've tried their best to fight back. So that, that's an inter- something interesting that I've learned over only in the last sort of month or, month or so mm. after many years of doing interviews with people who are often very vulnerable and I sort of cast my mind back over whether I should have done some of the interviews I've actually done. It's hard to know. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're always looking at ways of kind of throwing the conventions, you know, out of the window and, and all flipping them on their head, you know. One of the uh, uh, jokes we made when we were studying social work is the uh, asking the question, what's the scariest ten words in the English language? And that and that is, I'm a social worker and I'm here to help. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're armed with a head full of knowledge yeah. and, you know, I've got the right tick yeah. trips and tricks and tips and techniques that I, I can fix someone mm. and, you know, the philosophy of um, of wayside is, is quite easily flies in the face of conventional mm. ways and processes saying that no one's a problem to be solved but a yeah. person to be met. That's right. And so there are ways of, you know, have spending time with others in narrative therapy, mm. they call it thickening the story oh, where okay. you hear a, a hint of agency in someone's narrative and you, you go back, you know, like maybe tampering with the food or, you know, holding back a bit of money to be able to have a yeah. bit more... It, to have to save up a little mm. kitty around there, so mm. the story becomes one of strength and resilience, of and focusing on those mm. touch points. Mm. Often, people's pain and trauma narratives mm. have um, stepping stones through the river where it is abuse and neglect, and and they, I'm not saying we dismiss those, but there are also other parts, other stepping stones in yes. the story that can be accessed. Yes, through that, there is a, is something. It's getting harder to find real people to tell their stories, particularly if you're trying to work in the space where mm. people are connecting with places such as Wayside mm. or various other services because there's a real wall that's going up with public relations people and comms people who are working to protocols where, you know, we don't want to name them, we don't want to trigger them, we don't want to re-traumatise them. And I understand that, of course, absolutely, five million mm. hundred times percent, but... Um, mm. If you, if my my strong feeling is that the personal stories are the stories that draw the most public response and um, have the most power, and can and hopefully have the most impact to make a difference, mm. and in both people's perception and both I suppose also ultimately in the case of a, a an organisation such as Wayside in donations as well. Mm. Um, if you don't hear those personal stories, if you're not hearing the real voices. Mm. It, the stories are, are weak and wishy-washy. When you first heard about Wayside, what, what drew you to Wayside? I mean, you said you grew up in a household with politics and mm. tensions with religion and all of a sudden um, you've become quite a good friend of Wayside. Yeah, mm. listen, it was great, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. Um, Tell us about that. I'd known of Wayside for years and years, probably in the Knopf's era. Um, it was just like... I think just from reading the newspapers, Wayside was regularly mentioned even before I moved to New South Wales, moved to Sydney. And I have always been drawn to those stories, I mean, mm. of of vulnerability and people who live on the edges and who who struggle. And I can't remember what my first encounter with Graham was. I did do a big profile story on Graham Long when I was first at the Sydney magazine 
which would have been about 2008, 2009. Mm. And I spent a lot of time with Graham and wrote a very long profile piece about his life story, which, of course, as you know, is really fascinating. And from then on, we just became buddies and we'd catch up every so often for coffee and I went to a few of his philosophy classes, sessions, seminars, whatever you call them. And um, I just... I've all, and I don't mean to sound like an awful, soppy, bleeding heart, but I remember from being a kid seeing homeless people in the street when I'd come to Sydney for holidays. You didn't see them in Toowoomba, obviously. Um, and I'd see them and I would just be, my insides would just clench and be in turmoil. It would just upset me so, so, so very much. Um, and also, lonely old men. I see lonely, like you see them often in the streets, as of course you mm. would. And there were some of those in Toowoomba that would come to, to Labor Party meetings. And I was scared of them, but at the same time, just tremendously upset by what I sensed around them, uh, around their persona. Was it loneliness? It mm. probably was. But what I would see when I would come to Wayside was sort of tore me apart I could just see how important it was at the same yeah. time. Yeah, they often say there's a there's a saying that says where you stand determines what you see. You know, if you stand with the powerful and at the centres of things, you you see the rest of society from that vantage point. Mm. And when you when you move to the edges, when you move by the wayside of life, you mm. you begin to see the world mm. from a whole different mm. viewpoint, Absolutely. from a whole different perspective. And as you grow in relationship with those in community uh, in who are sleeping rough on the streets you, mm. you begin to learn about the paths and the obstacles for a woman facing family and domestic oh, violence so many obstacles in so many lives mm. and it makes me just wild with anger and i a friend um, who moves in very posh circles compared to me recent or not so long ago was telling me um, of of someone that she knows, a man who lives somewhere on the northern North Shore, who says, all you need in life is is some determination and motivation. All you need in life is determination. <laughs> Meanwhile, he went to one of Sydney's poshest private schools, Harvard, law, business, kids in private schools, lifelong marriage. And it's just... It's just incomprehensible to me that people can be just so blind to the reality of other people's lives. And yeah. if you live in Mossman or Taramara or Manly, or, that's probably not the best example, but you don't see that, like I live in Redfern, and you see the streets, you see the people on the streets and you see their faces and you see the hardship they've yeah. been through. And if you don't live in one of those neighbourhoods, if you live in a leafy northern beaches suburb or down in the Sutherland Shire where the sun shines all day every day, you're so sheltered from the real world. We we have uh, a, rain, a bunch of national myths in this contemporary Australian society. One is that we have all begin with the same opportunities and yeah. it's a, we all begin at the same point on the starting line and it's a level playing field. Whereas pretty quickly, you know, when you begin to uh, spend some time away from your normal social circles, mm. you begin to hear that there are not necessarily what you've come to believe about society is not necessarily everyone's view of society. Mm, mm. And so, you know, from a young age you saw people who were sleeping rough or on the streets and you would your heart would go out to them. Did you ever anticipate that one day it would be you who would have an experience of, of being let down and manipulated? 
Oh, well, yes, I suppose so, because I've, I, I can't say that my relationship history has been particularly successful. Yeah. So, yes, I have been let down in relationships a lot over the years, and there's a whole lot of other reasons that we won't go into here for that. But um, I, I often find people like to minimise their own stories. So yeah, and, uh, I guess But actually so. there's a lot of power in it. Yeah. Um, so personally, no, I'm, I'm, it's not surprising that I should go through things because... Everybody, most people go through things, except mm. our rich man on the northern bit, on the, in the northern suburbs. But I first wrote, and I thought we were going to be talking about it a lot more—a story about loneliness. We are going to go oh, there. Um, I first wrote about loneliness, and I shared my. It was probably the first time I'd ever really written about my own story, mm. and that was about 2014, I think. I can't remember, and it was tremendously difficult to share such a personal story, which was revealing my vulnerability, my failures, I suppose, which is who do, who wants to do that? Mm. My private shame, who wants to do that? Mm. And it was the story that I've had a lot of stories since that I've written about my own situations that have drawn outpourings of, of response, but that one about loneliness was the first. Um, and it, it was the first that made me realise that telling personal stories just can be so intensely powerful yeah. um, and revealing your own vulnerabilities can be just so powerful mm. and really important as mm. well. Um, and so I wrote the book. You know, as we all navigate this journey called life, we all face obstacles. There's no one who has a dream run through it. And the terrain that we walk on, there is nothing unique to the warp and woof of humanity that hasn't occurred to someone else. Exactly. But there are those of us who are called to be the cartographers of that land and to tell their own story. That's putting it. That's so beautiful. Mm. Actually, that was interesting. After I wrote, um, I first wrote about the story that led to the book Fake um, for the Good Weekend magazine when I was on staff there and revealed that I'd been the victim of a romance scammer, really. I mean, it he didn't take money from me. He never asked for money, but um, he was not who he said he was. And I spent 15 months with him thinking I was going to be married and spend the rest of my life with him. Um, and we'd lived this dream existence on a on his country estate that he told me he had. Of course he didn't. Um, and I wrote, it was devastating, well and truly recovered now, but um, devastating at the time. And I after it ended, I just had to know who he was. I had to work out who the hell this man was that had completely and utterly convinced me of this story arc, this this magnificent story where he was this sort of lead character in his own great story of wealth and privilege and and um, I did a lot of investigating in, mm. into who he really was and um, it was fascinating and it helped me recover, I suppose, mm. learn, coming to understand who he was and to some degree that his behaviour clearly to me had to be the result of a personality mm. disorder because it was just so, so extraordinary. Um, but I wrote for that, wrote the, the bare bones of that story for Good Weekend magazine um, and I, this leading on from what you just talked about being a cartographer, um, a woman who worked in a family law practice, a lawyer who sees these sorts of stories very frequently, emailed me to say, that's extraordinary, you've, you've told so many people's stories, it's so important. I must have emailed her back saying, thank you, thank you. I feel very uncomfortable having done that. It was very difficult to share that story so publicly and she replied along the lines of what you just said, that there are some of us who are there, mm. are built to make the, tell these stories to help other people. And that was a really powerful thing that she said. It made me feel more comfortable in... Mm 
having exposed myself that way, I suppose. Well, thank you for doing that <laughs> because it's so empowering for others mm. not to gloat over your failures or mm. whatever that is perceived to be, but it tells other people's stories in a yeah. way and opens up new conversations because there is a significant amount of shame attached oh, to so much shame. story. Because, I mean, being scammed is a shameful. The world makes us think that, you know, if you've been scammed or conned, mm. you're an idiot. Well, Australians, there was a report last week, half a million Australians fell for a scam in the last mm. year. And my father in his career before he retired often was working with people who were being scammed mm. and very good, very competent, very established business people yeah. who had been tricked, you know, via Facebook message mm. or some sort of email and had just mm. handed over significant amounts of mm. money mm. to people and they had told no one because of shame. Shame. It's such a powerful thing. What do you think are some of the links between shame and loneliness? I think loneliness is when you feel lonely, it's a very shaming experience. It's a, it's a very shameful thing to admit to being lonely, which I did in this story about loneliness um, because what that, if, you admit it, if you're admitting you're lonely, I think you're fundamentally admitting that you're not succeeding in life because we're told from very early, early days that a good life equals happy family, children, mm. grandchildren, picket fence, community, family barbecues, family celebrations, family, 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 more family, um, friends, big networks of friends, school friends, university friends. And there's lots of people, including me, who don't have those networks because, well, my story is that I've been transient. Um, I've moved from Toowoomba to Brisbane, back to Toowoomba, back to Brisbane, um, to London, to Melbourne, to Hong Kong, to Melbourne, and then to Sydney where I am now. Mm. And so the, my school friends are in, in, a, in different towns, my university friends are in different towns, and the further away in time and place that you go, the more fragmented those friendships become. Um, when I landed in Sydney, where I live now, um, I was 39, 40, and my contemporaries were having babies and I was single. And so, you know, they were meeting they were with partners and family and meeting parents in playgroups and kindergarten and that was not my – I wasn't there because I didn't have children. Um, and in my neighbourhoods, since I got a dog, I have to say, a dog makes a very big difference in life. She's embedded me in my community. She was a pandemic puppy and she's just changed my life. I'm embedded in the community. But what I do notice, I've met a lot of lovely women in my neighbourhood through the dog park um, – and what I do notice is that they have connections pre-existing from long before the dog park mm. because of the local school, which is a very strong local school community, um, local high school playgroups, children's groups, kids went to the same kindergarten and those connections, and of course not every, not every woman or man has connections for, through their kids that are as solid, but these women have known each other for so long because of their children. So you're eliminating a whole set of potential social interactions if you don't have kids. Mm. Um, you And if you don't have a partner, you're eliminating your brothers-in-law, your sister-in-law, your in-laws, your, you know, your friend, the friends of your husband or your girlfriend or whatever. You're eliminating. There's another 
avenue of connection that you don't have. Yeah. Um, and then if you haven't grown up in the town and your mother's not here, your parents aren't here, I mean, my brother's in Sydney, but so through circumstance, it's not, it's not, it's not yeah. failure. I've worked really hard to establish connections here and I have made some really, really good friends. Yeah. Unfortunately, people keep leaving Sydney because of how expensive it is. <laughs> Every time I make a new good friend, they go. Um, and I don't think it's to do with me. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really tough. And there are lots of reasons why I particular my specific circumstance experience has been one of loneliness, but there are all sorts of other stories that lead to loneliness as well. Mine is just obviously one of them. But it's actually not a story of failure when you analyse it. Mm. But it's very hard to shake the feeling that you are a failure that, and that is something that brings great shame. Yeah, if you, 20 years ago if you asked someone if, you know, you ask the question, are you okay? Mm. You often, you, you quite possibly ran the risk of getting punched in the face. <laughs> yeah. uh, and now, but a lot of work has gone into being able to normalise that conversation yeah. and to be able to have that in a really healthy... Do you think it's a deep conversation, way. though? Do you really think that are you okay makes any sense? Well, the second question is often the most important, which is are you really okay? Yeah. <laughs> we can't. We just simply do not have a language around loneliness. No. And also a, lo a language around community and connection either. Mm. Two of the greatest enemies of community are competition and comparison. Mm. And so we often have that in the social media mm. space. Comparison can... is also the greatest enemy of being comfortable with yourself as well. well. The thief of joy. The yeah, thief of... total. I'm guilty of it myself, comparing mm. myself and it's the thing that's guaranteed to make me more unhappy than anything. Mm. And it's very hard, even though you can objectively see that, it's very difficult not to. You've spent time with people from all walks of life, from all, all over the world with all kinds of arenas of success and um, do you find that they're playing the same games of competition and comparison? I think to a degree probably everybody does. It's a modern disease, isn't it? Mm. Is it a modern disease? Is it, a, is it, an, is it an age-old disease probably? Oh, I think it's an age-old disease, yeah. right? We yeah. always, you know, we yeah. look at our grandparents and we are infinitely more wealthy than they could have mm. ever dared mm. dream or imagine, but are mm. we happier? Mm. Mm. No. Community and connection is, is where that kind of sense mm. of, you know, how, how, what, so you, 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 wrote about, you wrote an article about loneliness. Um, since you wrote that, I mean, talk to me about some of your findings in that, but also how's that developed over the last few years since writing it? Um, well, as I said, hmm. it got just such a huge response. Hmm. The emails in my inbox, I'd never had any response like that to any article that I'd ever written. Around loneliness? Around loneliness. Right, more so than um, the, your book, Fake. Oh, well, that came later. So right. it was, <laughs> I've written a trio now of... Um, of story, bring the violins out, bring the bring the weeping, wailing women out, because I've written a trio of stories now about um, sections of my life, yeah. and the first was loneliness. So that was the first time mm. I'd ever had such a response. Um, it was just extraordinary. People going, "Oh, thank God, someone's talking about this." Yeah. People were just. I think the response was, "Thank God, someone else is telling my story. I'm not alone." Mm. You know, the word alone and loneliness, obviously, we can go into, you know, the differences between them. Mm. You don't, if you're alone, you're not necessarily lonely. Um, and if you're lonely, you're not necessarily alone. But mm. it was just people going, oh, thank God. Mm. Um, but then I wrote a story about not having had children mm. and having always wanted to have kids and that just didn't mm. happen for me. And again, 
another huge outpouring of response. Mm. And then I wrote the story about my st- the, the one that led to the book Fake, um, about um, the con artist, romance con artist in my life. And, and again, a huge response. Mm. And at each time there's just this this mass of people out there who've had the same experiences mm. and have thought that they were utterly alone in those experiences. And from a personal point of view, when I look at the three stories together, those three, the, the violin trio, um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they all make sense. You know, I have mm. been lonely because of the transience in my life and the fact mm. that I haven't had a partner and children. You know, And many women in my situation might not be lonely. For, mm. They might have strong communities. They might be living a completely different story. But the loneliness and the ch- not having children are connected and then also yeah. falling for a guy when I was in a state of vulnerability yeah. is connected to the other two stories as well. So they, I can see now how they, the three stories interact, interact. and I can also see that the vulnerability, that the situation of vulnerability I was in and loneliness led yeah. to me being um, susceptible to this guy. Yeah. You know, we, we're beginning now to talk a bit more about loneliness as a society. Mm. What, are, um, what are some of the anchor points for you? What, what, what are some of the things we can do beyond just talking about it? What are, what, what are some of the things you've found most effective in? Oh, God, it's such a difficult thing. Um, I mean, my first response is to reach out to people. Yeah. But then is reaching out to someone that you're doing, you're reaching out to out of sympathy the right thing to do? Have you reached out to people? Um, or is it more a platitude we often... we given the pamphlet? I have found it difficult at times. I've tried to and then I've gone, I don't feel true in this friendship. I, mm. uh, yeah, that's that's. Do you know what I mean? Right? Like it doesn't feel like a place of equality. It doesn't, it feels like I might be, and, and I haven't done this very often and I, I'm, I, I just know that that is a sense I've had that it wouldn't be an equal friendship if I were to maintain this connection or... Um, I'm not expressing myself very well, but... Is that a fear or is it one of the stories we tell ourselves? It's an awkwardness, I think, Mm. that I'm not really connecting with this person because I want to in my heart of hearts. I'm connecting Mm. because I feel I should Mm. and I'm not sure that that's a solution to anyone's problems. Mm. I just think it's really an intractable problem. Mm. I, um, I mean, there's a... There's in Japan. There's a minister for for loneliness, and in mm. the UK, there, there's all sorts of government-funded initiatives to to end loneliness, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, of course. And I looked up this this morning. There's a, there's an Australian government initiative, ending loneliness yes. um, together. We re, we represent a national network of organisations who have been working together since 2016 to build the evidence base and tools to address loneliness in Australia. John is like, I don't know, is that going to, like, what do you think? I don't have answers. I don't know. What have you tried, though? Like, I, I've got a six my, secret set of mates. That's for my just, yeah. own for my own loneliness, you mean? Or, yeah, or to, yeah. to What have you found effective or where um, have you taken risks? Because it, it takes vulnerability oh, and courage. it does, doesn't it? It oh. does. Um, what will they think of me if I say this? Listen, I've worked really hard to build connections in my community mm. and it's through the community garden, the local community garden I'm a member yeah. of. Um, I go to a local yoga studio reasonably regularly, the dog park. I'm on. I'm the secretary of my strata committee mm. in my apartment building. Is that for your sins? <laughs> oh, God, don't, don't even start me on it. It's absolute hell. 
It is hell on earth. We're dealing with... In fact, I'm convinced if there is a hell, it would be a strata it, committee. Yeah. Right? So. We have an intractable problem at the moment and I, as a freelancer, I cannot afford the hours I have put into this problem. But anyhow, so, I mean, I can walk the streets of my neighbourhood now and very rarely is, do I not see someone I know. Mm. And I think just that it tethers you to the mm. community, I think, just that, that even if it's just a hello and an acknowledgement and the dog gets me out, like thank God for the dog. I don't think, I think my mental health would be very much more precarious if I didn't have the dog mm. who gets me out because I grapple with depression. I'm on antidepressants, have been for years. Um, but one of the things that, and I've heard a lot about this lately, it's about the consistency of your presence in places. Um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday actually as I was cooking um, about how you know, sign up for things for sure. But if you just go once, that's mm. not going to establish you in any way. Mm. You know, you have to go over and over and over again. Mm. Um, and it's the consistency of your presence that will hopefully eventually yield um, communications with people and maybe more than just communication, maybe a friendship or a connection. And then another really interesting thing was... Um, this same podcast I was listening to, and God, I can't even remember which, where, what one it was, but the woman was talking about how there have been surveys that have been done and people are asked who they remember the most from an event or a gathering or a workshop or a class. And the person that comes up over and over again, might not, the question might not even have been about who they remember the most. It might be who did you like the most? Mm. And it is always the person that has made the overture of friendship. It's always the person that's approached people, been possibly even the loudest in the room and said, let's go for coffee after this or mm. um, how are you? What's your name? And it's that person who steps outside their comfort zone. Well, maybe they're, mm. maybe they're very comfortable with themselves and an extrovert and it's not outside their comfort zone. Mm. But I guess the lesson there is step outside your comfort zone, be the person that says, hello, how are you? My name's mm. Steph or whatever. Um, and there's an another thing that this person on this podcast mentioned yesterday was that we under underestimate how much liked, how liked we are. We, we all of us feel that, oh, there's something wrong with me and people aren't yeah. going to like me, um, I'm a bit of a failure, um, oh, I won't say anything, I'll shrink into myself. And when, in fact, people aren't thinking about you that much. No, we're, they're we're not far judging more self-obsessed, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> and we're far more self-obsessed, far more consumed with worries relating to our own lives. Mm. And um, if we do step outside ourselves to make an approach we are going to be liked mm. way more than we're not going to be liked. Mm. And, I mean, I'm guilty of thinking, oh, they don't like me, you know, I'm not, no one's going to mm. like me, um, when in fact people like you a lot more than you, mm. your head tells you they might. It, it requires a lot of courage and a lot of risk, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it know, does, absolutely. The, I can hear through your story, the, you know, Mother Teresa was talking about it in the 60s and 70s and you're saying loneliness is the leprosy of the West. Mm you know, this sense of disconnection mm. and Robert Putnam was picking it up in his research in the 80s and 90s mm. where he mm. wrote the book Bowling Alone saying our, our voluntary associations are starting to fragment mm. and, you know, his metaphor for the book Bowling Alone was there used to be all these bowling leagues across America in the 60s and 70s and then if you looked at membership through the 80s and 90s, most of the people who were turning up to bowling alleys were bowling alone. 
no longer had oh, wow. the social capital and the social connections, which he connect to locality. Wow. So, and he f- did some research which found an inverse proportionality between how far you travel for work and pleasure and between how well connected you feel and report measures of well-being in your local neighbourhood. Which is why I think the dog parks and the morning cafes mm have become so important. Mm, we think mm. about the routines that we practised when we were younger. Mm. Yeah, there were the, the video store. You know, I remember the Friday night rush to the video store and you'd see the same punters <laughs> there. And mm. when I moved out of home, I always shopped on the same day and I, after a while, began to mm. see the same faces mm. and you'd say hello. And mm. and the gyms now today are yeah. very important if, if you attend a gym. Mm. And, you know, I'm in that age category now where I talk more than I actually do anything at the gym <laughs> because we're, we're just seeing each other. I and just cry at the gym. <laughs> That's right. No, no more. No, <laughs> enough, no, enough. no competition, no comparison, <laughs> just finding your level, which is on a, a very slow walk Can for I me. Can I say something else mm. before I forget about Please. loneliness? And it's something that I've identified in myself and I'm going to blame my mum for this, she's a very judgmental woman and I have taken on inherited either genetically or (laughs) nature nurture, who knows. I I, I work very hard to fight this voice in my head but I can be quite judgmental about people. Mm. I'm embarrassed to admit it. There you go, I said it. And something someone, a psychologist said this to me um, a couple of years ago, that that is an alienating force. If you are judging someone else in your head about whatever it is that you're judging them about, whatever it mm. might be, their clothes, their whatever, mm. um, the way they speak, the, their intel- level of intelligence, whatever it might be, you're creating a distance mm. between you and that person. Mm. Whereas if you approach them with no judgment, with just an open heart, that sounds like a cliche, but drop the judgment, all of a sudden there's much less distance between you and someone else. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately and I really think that that might have sometimes impeded some of connection for me. Mm. When we are convinced we know how every action and interaction is going to go with another person, when we think we know all the answers, you know, we often find ourselves and we would say that there's no more miserable position to be in than being the smartest person in the room. Mm. You know, I know mm. how this is going to go. I know what that person's life is all about. Mm. You know, it's a very alienating, lonely place at times and we all experience mm. that judgmentalism. Mm. And if we can drop those judgments, if we can drop those barriers, we have these opportunities to engage in every interaction saying, wow, I'm going to learn something yeah. today. And that's wonderful, isn't mm. it? And everybody's got layers of stories. Like I'm... In the back of my head right now, I'm sitting here and thinking, I've told, I've shared a real lot with you, mm. but I've shared like an ice tip of the iceberg. Yeah, you know, um, there's just so much more I could tell you about that mm. I won't because it's private, mm. um, or because it's we haven't got the time or mm. or whatever. But every person's story is an intensely complex, mm. layered, beautiful creature. Mm. Mostly, not my eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we and, and you know you, you've written, you know you've written quite powerfully about that whole thing, and that's taken you into um, conversations with so many people around loneliness, mm. around relationships, around mm. those I'm who haven't had I'm still getting kids. emails multiple times a week from people mm. saying thank you for one story or another I've done, mostly related to the book, um, mm. and people who've had bad relationships, but 
um, I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago for Good Weekend about um, the difficulty and the challenges connected to career transition mm. or midlife unemployment and underemployment. Mm. And I, I've been astonished at the outpouring of, and I relate, yeah. because I'm a freelancer now, it's it's mm. not an easy path being a freelance journalist. And I wrote of some of my own anxieties mm. and agonies and applying for odd jobs here and there and going, not getting get it hearing back or not getting the job and the difficult, the, the challenges to your ego and particularly the ageism embedded mm. in that. And so I've had a huge response to that story. Mm. And I think because I revealed a little of myself in there was partly the reason for that response. But even yesterday I was um, a fairly well-known um, Australian musician reached out mm. to me um, and asked to talk to me about their experience of a, a, a deceitful relationship mm. And I had a conversation with them yesterday. Wow. And I've got several more in my inbox and I was on Australian Story last year mm. and I really do my best to try and respond to everybody that mm. emails me but it just gets overwhelming and I've still got about 300 emails. I haven't wow. People I haven't responded to yeah. that came to me, that contacted me after the Australian Story about mm. um, my romance scanning well, experience. People are craving and desiring authenticity yeah. and, and sharing of themselves because we... Yeah, we often live in this isolating, um, more and more projected ideal self mm. kind of world mm. and when someone mm. actually steps outside mm. of that. Mm. They, I've recently started themselves. an email newsletter that goes out every week and I'm really trying to it's – it's a bit of everything. It's about is creativity. It, 3,000 subscribers, right? Uh, no, check? no, not quite. Nearly 2,000. Nearly 2,000. <laughs> um, but you, only after a few weeks. No, it's been going longer than that. Yeah. It's been going about okay. a year and a half. Oh, no, about a year. About That's a year. amazing. So, um, but I try and show my imperfections mm. and my – you know the lack of glamour in my life often, and my and it's it's about creativity and joy and yeah. finding good things when the days are grey. And mm. um, but it's about the authenticity, and I think yeah. that that's what, as you say, it's what people are responding to. Yeah, and you and I connected a couple of years ago over some the remains of a few dead people. That's right. I got a lot that people love that. What story kind of struck too. you about that story that you went? Oh, I want to write about this because they were people. Hmm. You want to tell they had everyone stories. what we're talking about? Well, yeah. Now, how did I hear about that? Maybe I think it was in one of your newsletters, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and you were talking about talking to them maybe, sitting mm. in your office and having conversations with these urns mm. of wayside visitors who had not, whose remains hadn't been collected. And that broke my heart. Mm. I mean, just awful. Um, and I thought, I wonder who those people were. Mm. And it was really just a simple... It was as simple as that. I want I to know who those people are. this little community of ashes there and some are sisters, some are mums, some are dads, some are brothers and for various reasons the families have not been able to bring themselves to claim the ashes. Or so. no families in some cases. Mm. Well, we can't, we've lost contact with mm. some of the families and it was particularly through lockdown mm. um, that we got this collection of them, and I like to hold on to them for a little while just in case. Are there many um, still there? Yeah, there's still about half a dozen, but now that the community garden is up and running, I'll oh, hold a I memorial see, service. I see, right, yeah. yeah. You know, all of them hold a unique and precious part of the story of King's Cross mm. and also of Wayside mm. Chapel in that space. So mm. I like to honour that as yeah. much as possible. Only one set of ashes I've interred and then the families asked for them, so we we just made something up. <laughs> that's uh, that's Graham speaking there. Yeah. 
that's, that's the, what you do. Yeah. Um, no, that story just, it was who were these people? There are sad stories behind these people because otherwise. Isn't that the deepest desire for us all is to not be forgotten? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was very powerful um, as an idea. Yeah. How much of life do you think is a search for love? Oh, the whole of life, isn't it? Yeah. But I've given up, that said. <laughs> um, I, if it's not a search for love, it's a search for a place and acceptance, mm. a search for home. Yeah. Mm. And so homelessness isn't just about having a roof over your head. No. It's, it's about having a community mm. and a tribe. And a place. And a place. Mm. Mm. You can throw anyone into a house. Exactly. And I'm also reminded when you say that of, and it might even be something you or Graham have told me or I've read through via Wayside, about people who are given rooms, Mm. given houses, and then they don't want to be there because it might be somewhere away from where they know their community. Um, And it's, it's, they actually don't stay in Mm. the accommodation they finally get because they are lonely in that Mm. accommodation. So it's way way more than a physical mm. structure, isn't it? A house, um, and it it also is one of the things that makes me the maddest about the the dislocation, government sponsored dislocation of the the, the housing commission, the public housing communities. Mm. In um, is it Milson's Point on this? Mm. I always get confused between McMahon's Point. Yeah, and Milson's we've point. also got Waterloo happening now. Waterloo, and which Red is down the road from me, and um, it just is. makes me wild because those people will be relocated to places out mm. as far away as they can be sent, where no mm. one will see, where they, no one can see them there, and out of out of sight, out of mind, mm. they won't have their communities, mm. and it just makes me so angry that money and profit is is put ahead of those people, mm. and the, and the real needs they have. We're a place-based people, you know. We don't find our connections by our physical addresses so much by the people amongst whom we mm. walk every day and are mm. related to and mm. have connections with over mm. dogs and schoolyards yeah. and gyms and cafes and mm. our sense of well-being is mm. certainly far more complex than any policymakers dare to acknowledge. Yeah, you know. although any policymakers even are capable of acknowledging. <laughs> I, and I think that we can go back to my, my mm. father and my grandfather, they would have understood that mm. and they would have worked to make that, to keep those communities intact mm. had they been in New South Wales government now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It, or it would have not gone unnoticed through the, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been an economic rationalist argument to win no. the day. If you could give advice to someone out there who might be suffering right now, um, and we need to recognise and acknowledge that uh, we all bring different strengths to the table, what would you tell someone who is seeking connection to do in the context of their own life? Get a dog. (laughs) Get a dog. Get a dog. Um, It's basic. What's your puppy's name? Lola. 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 From the Kinks, right? It could be from the Kinks. It could be from Barry Manilow too. But no, actually Lola is actually, her full name is Lola Montez and Lola Montez was an English cabaret artist who married the King of Bavaria in the 19th century and travelled to the Australian goldfields and she died of syphilis. <laughs> Seriously. There's a story. <laughs> no, Lola Montez, look her up. She was a, she led a very wild and interesting life in the 19th century, I think, yes. Mm. And um, I just loved that. I don't think it could have been a particularly happy life, but it was certainly an interesting life and she was wild and crazy, as my dog is. Now, I think music is a powerful medium. 
Do you, do you love music? I adore music. Yes, oh. I do. What's a song that under the right conditions can make lots you cry? Lots of songs, lots of songs. Um, I have really very broad Catholic tastes, Catholic in the, it's the sense universal. of... Universal. Universal. Um, I was listening to some country and western yesterday. Mm. I like folk music. I love female vocalists and cabaret and I adore classical music and opera and I have cried to an aria by the composer Saint-Sons. Now, I'm not, I don't have a very good accent there, but it's Saint-Sons with a circumflex over one of those, but it's um, S-A-E-N-S. Yeah. S-A-E-N-S. Yes, it's a, it's, he's a French composer. Mm. Don't ask me, it would have been the 18th century as well. And it's a song called Softly Awakens My Heart, an, oh. an aria called Softly Awakens My Heart, and it is just, it transcends. Mm. Maria Calais sang it, and it's just a very special piece of music. Yeah. Well, I would like to say a massive thanks for opening our hearts. Our writer, journalist and friend of Wayside Chapel, Stephanie Wood, thanks for being with us today. Oh, John, it was just such a treasure. Thank you. Today we have been talking to Stephanie Wood, an award-winning long-form feature writer and author of Fake, a true story about love in a world of liars, cheats, narcissists, fantasists and phonies. If you'd like to read Stephanie's book, we've added a link in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear more stories from The Wayside, you can always subscribe to our Inner Circle. Thanks for listening to Stories by The Wayside. My name's John Owen. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories by The Wayside. If you love this show, please give it a five-star review. It helps so much in promoting this, but also share it with a friend. If someone you love who's going through a tough time came to your mind while you were listening, please share it with them. Thank you.